This, this, this show is brought to you by Safety FM. Hi listeners, this is Brent Sutton. Welcome to episode 9 of the Practice of Learning Teams. On today's show we are joined by Sam Goodman, the podcast host of the show The Hop Nerd and author of Safety Sucks. Sam shares his views on how to make safety suck less using learning teams in part 1 of this two-part series. Strap in as uh, Sam shares his views and parental guidance is not required. Um an organization that has has more recently become very hop based over the past several years. Um, seeing them kind of evolve to the point of understanding that learning teams are, are just one of the tools in the bag, mm-hmm. I think is an interesting thing to see, right? You, you, you see these leaders that are coming up with various different things. It's like, you know what? I'm just going to have a meeting where I'm going to sit down and listen to people. Like that's a learning tool too. Uh, absolutely. You can use that. That's, yeah. that's absolutely something you can use. Yeah. You know, even even the even the old wacky meeting is like, hey, we got a problem. Everybody bring two ideas and a sticky note. That's like, a that's, that's a that's yeah. a way to learn. Those yeah. are all bits absolutely. and ways to learn. And absolutely that that's a you know, those are those are different tools that are in the bag just as uh kind of where we're where we're going. I mean, in our in RCA, you know, we use RCA, ACA, different processes in kind of the utility space for just about everything, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're kind of learning how to use all these different tools now and to understand that that different tools work better in different areas. Um, but just understand that we can open up that bag and there's tons of different ways that we can actually go out and kind of, kind of, kind of squeeze that to get the juice out. Right. We, there's a lot of different ways we can go out and actually find out the learnings that we need to find out. But, but the conversation we're not having is how do tools become weaponized? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, uh, we feel quite strongly that it's through a lack of knowledge and understanding it's those lack of soft mm. skills. It's sure. because we're not investing in our people to um, to do the best with it. So if you leave someone there to, to their, their devices, why are you surprised? That yeah. they well, even with it? that, I, I always I tend to always fall back to the underlying assumptions and then to the values of the organization. Right? Um, I, I lean heavy into into to Todd's five principles book. Um, you know, leaning back into that, if if your your underlying values and principles are, are I don't want to even necessarily use the word correct, but better. Let's just say better. Yeah. Because um, if the organization truly believes that blaming people fixes things, it, it doesn't matter what tool you put there, right? It doesn't matter because the, the tool the tool is a very surface level thing, right? Um, even even the uh, uh, even the skills in between the values and the tools are still mid surface level, right? Mm-hmm. So if the, you kind of have this shared understanding within the organization that you know what we blame that really does some good stuff. Or if, or if we even even to the to kind of the first first kind of uh, um, point here, you know that error is is pretty normal, right? If the organization believes that every human error is preventable and everything is preventable, and we start from that that square on the board, I don't know if we get very far. No, well, I, don't, I don't I don't I don't yeah. think we can get very far at all until we change those kind of underlying underlying beliefs and assumptions. But everything has a bias. For sure, yeah. The question is, which bias is more healthy than the other bias? Right, 
right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're, we're driven, Re reshuffling uh, the, the deck of biases. Yeah. Uh, you, you, your boss, you formed a bias. I form, I form a bias. Uh, all, mm -hmm. all I know is that it's much healthier to have a bias where we place the system in the center and put mm -hmm. the people around the outside. Right, right. Putting the person in the center and putting the system around them is an unhealthy bias, which is how investigations work. So, and, and I just, you know, I just really put it in that simple way of a circle yeah. to basically say, which, which bias do people think is more healthier? Right, right. Which, which bias tends to uh, uh, lead people down a way of feeling um, uh, blame or guilt or denial through emotion? You know, and just we have that conversation and it doesn't take people long to actually realize which bias is healthier. Yeah. But a bias yeah. is a bias. Yeah. And yeah, biases exactly. are formed through our knowledge and understanding. That's all. Yeah. So let's embrace it. I mean, maybe uh, maybe I'm going to set up a show called The Safety Bias. And um, <laughs> I like it. You should. <laughs> yeah. Who knows? Who knows? But hey, one of the reasons I want to catch up with, with you in particular today was to um, re really have a, a, a richer conversation about how you think uh, learning teams could make safety suck less. Okay. Because I agree, safety does suck at, at the best of times. Yeah. Um, and organizations are really looking to see the alternative or other ways of, of approaching it. So from your point of view, Sam, um, if, if I said... If you were to rank the, 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 the three top reasons why safety sucks, what, what would that look like? What would you rank as the, the, the three largest sucks of safety? That's 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 easier said than done because number one, there's a lot. <laughs> and I, I I don't know if I can I don't know if I can uh, well, the three you encounter the most three. But let me let me I'll start with uh, I'll start with a piece that I've been ranting on quite a bit. Um, and that's just the the role of the safety practitioner right. and the yep. way that that fits within industry organizations, um, all, all of that bit, because what really surprised me um, is that, you know, spending the majority of my time and career in power generation and transmission and distribution and, and large utilities and power maintenance and construction, everything tied back to power generation and moving power to homes and all, you know, all that there. Um, I never spent really any time in manufacturing you know, I, I spent a little tiny dabble in mining, just enough to realize that mining wasn't for me, right? And and spent spent uh, you know a little bit of time here or there, um, but nothing you know elbows deep into um, you know I didn't I didn't spend ten years at a at a car manufacturing plant or anything like that. But as I kind of started to have more of these conversations um, around exactly that the the sucks of safety, um, I started to find that we all had this kind of shared experience around the professional practice of safety. Mm -hmm. right? it, it didn't seem to matter if you were at a nuclear generating station uh, or if you were at a, a plant making widgets or if you were at a plant making potato chips, like you know, <laughs> we all kind of had the same, the, the same kind of problems in and around this, especially this, right? Especially this piece, the role of the practitioner. So the, the first suck, if, if I were to really kind of yeah. summarize that into something, would be the the just the definition of the practitioner, because I I believe that the role of the practitioner or the defined role of the practitioner has grown to such bloated extremes that there is no definition for the practitioner anymore. Um, the practitioner has really become the junk drawer of organizations, 
just, we don't know where to put all this other crap. So let's just slide it into the safety drawer. It kind of sounds like safety so it can go in the junk drawer. The, the safety folks can take care of that. What have, what have you done for me lately anyways? Right. What, what, have, what do I pay you for anyways? So it's just kind of that, right? You see these kind of multi-page um, job descriptions that have little bits and tidbits from kind of every bit of the organization. Uh, and then it kind of wraps up with this and other responsibilities and duties to be as added well. as necessary. So, so let's explore that. Um, I think the first thing, my, my comment would be is that through time we have created these practitioners to become the gatekeeper and owner mm-hmm. of this domain. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. So I think um, to, to go further into that, um, especially kind of back to the junk drawer, it's kind of this combination like junk drawer, easy button mm-hmm. kind of thing. If I had to kind of paint a, a, it's like a junk drawer with an easy button inside of it. I guess if I had to paint a, a visual picture of what the kind of role of the practitioner would be, because especially post operational surprise mm-hmm. or upset or injury, right? We go, Hey, safety person, do this for me. And we add something else to that role because the safety person becomes this really highly visible point of both action and blame. Right. You're right in front of me. I'm a director. You're right in front of me. I can call this singular person into my office yep. and say, how did you not predict this? How did you let this happen? Safety person, you need to do better into predicting and preventing this with your magic crystal ball. Now go do that. Yeah. Right. And we just keep adding on to what the practitioner does, especially it seems post not so great thing happening. We just kind of add two and we add two and we add two and we add two. And then we never really, really take, take away, I guess. Uh, is is what I've heard from from most people and a lot of what I've experienced. But to even go a little farther into that, I think there's this bit where you see practitioners that, especially post not so great thing happening or post surprise, now all of a sudden they're empowered by their organization, right? They're they're kind of pre-surprise pleas for doing things better or change. It's kind of fallen on deaf ears unless it's been very high-level surface stuff, right? Unless it's been like, sure, you can paint that curve. You go right ahead and paint that curve or put up that sign. That's absolutely fine. But anything that costs more than that, we're not touching, right? right? Now, all of a sudden, shit is at the fan. I, I think I can cuss on here, right? I hope yeah, I can. Can. <laughs> yeah. Bad, bad, something bad has happened, right? Something bad has happened. And now, all of a sudden, the practitioner is empowered, or at least this faux sense of empowerment, right? To, you, now you can go fix stuff. Now you can go add to. Now you can go do something and change stuff. Right. And unfortunately, the practitioner um, usually doesn't do a lot of, let's say, hands-on work these days, right? Um, if you've been a practitioner for quite a while, you've probably not had your hands, you know, elbows deep into a piece of equipment or on something. So you don't necessarily even understand what you're changing, right? We're, we're not really taking time to really dig in and examine what we're really doing. But then we add something to, or we change a bit here, or we add a check sheet there, and then you kind of see that, that empowerment kind of spiral into more organizational bloat right yeah, so just yeah, build, more build more lives right? build more barriers build more right yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. just more just more stuff because that's more, that scene is being more, valuable more work right yeah so so i think once again what, what we're saying here though is the, the 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 measurement from the organization is about the um absence or presence of harm is the measurement yes. the measurement's right. not about the presence of the capacity or the presence of the mitigations actually doing the right. job. It's right. based on the absence of presence of harm. Right. And so I, I even, I even peel that back. Right. I think, I think we go farther back 
because the defined role of the practitioner, in my opinion, my humble opinion, um, comes from our, our, our defined role of what safety is in general within our industries, right? So most organizations define safety as the absence of something, right? It's the absence of, of harm. It's the absence of injury. It's the absence of surprise, right? Nothing surprised us. We have our goose egg. We got that zero that we have on the banner over there on the wall. We finally got right. it, right? That, that, that becomes the goal. That becomes the value of the organization, the absence of those things. And of course, the practitioner is going to work to support those values, whether willfully or forced, right? The organization's paying their paycheck to support the values of the organization, right? And we're going to see that practitioner support that goal of zero, right? We're going to see that practitioner work just yeah. to make sure that that's what they manage. Um, then at the end of the day, the practitioner really, you know, when they do jump in and start managing those things, um, when they start becoming the manager of outcome, right? They become the easy button for the organization. When, when you're the manager of the outcome, Right. Of course, it's easy for the organization to come back and say, well, how why didn't you manage that outcome? How this one slipped through slipped through the crack safety person? Absolutely. How did you not see this one? How did you not predict this one with your behavior based observation program? So that so that <laughs> forms so that that means that those people are now uh, in that whole prevention bias. Right. So they're forced into this. Right. So, so when they're looking at the they're looking at the hazard now, mm -hmm. their whole circle is about prevention, that prevention bias. Right. That drives that drives right. that behavior, and right. exactly. and uh, as the expert, because that's what they're being, uh, they've mm -hmm. become the prevention expert. As right. the prevention expert, when that prevention hasn't worked, then that must lead to more barriers. So let's put right. more layers into it mm -hmm. as a result, which is quite yeah. interesting because, um, and, and you can see how this has happened. I, I don't know how popular things like risk bow ties are in the U.S. But, but oh, yeah. they're yeah. a classic piece of shite. Okay. We, 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 we share the same struggles. I'll just put it that yeah. way. It, it, yeah. it, it, no, it, it knows no, uh, it, it knows no border. Absolutely. <laughs> this, this, pro this problem expands globally. <laughs> but, but obviously the, 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 the more we can jam on the left side, the less we have to worry about the right side. Right. Now, in the dark world that I have to live in, dealing with fatalities and major harms, um, I've yet to have a fatal where the risk register didn't say that the consequence was life-changing. Right. I find there's some interesting irony. So when someone is killed or seriously harmed in the workplace, when you go back to the risk register, it said the likely consequence of the hazard is death. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I can't think of a single... Uh, and I'll, I'll go here. I, I can't, sure. I'll go here. I, I, I can't think of a, a, a single task in a power plant that might not result in death. Yeah, that's right. So when it does happen, why are we surprised? <laughs> because it was in your right, risk register. Right. right. And I, th I think, I think, I think that's probably where we see that, right. Is that of, of course, everything, one of the most dangerous things in the power plant is, is the bazillion stairs that you walk up and down every single day. And it's the one piece that no one ever really thinks about. Yeah. Right. But it could absolutely result in an occupational fatality sure. pretty quick. Right. Very quick. Um, but it's those, it's those situations. Right. And, and, and you, you will have, um, I unfortunately have experience with fatalities as well. You, you live in that world quite a bit more than probably what I do. Um, but one or two a month. <laughs> right. Right. It, yeah. It's just to say, it, it seems like, um, I've, I've lived in the occupational fatality world about once every so many years. Mm -hmm. Um, but, it seems like just about all of these fatal or life altering events were so outside of our imagination that that could happen. 
right? It seems like just about every event that I've had experience with, no one would have ever imagined, right, that that would actually occur. Was, is, was the result, is there potential for death? For sure. I could walk outside and get hit by a bus, mm-hmm. right? There's a potential of death. If I stay in my house, I leave my house. If I just, if I just, if I wake up alive, there's a potential for death, right? Um, but the, 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 the actual events, um, it just never seemed like that when we looked at those, that it was, um, it was a surprise. It was always a surprise because if we could have predicted it, if we would have thought in a million years that it would have resulted in a fatality, we'd have done something about it. Oh, look, of course. And, and, and the worker um, um, seldom, if any time, uh, knowingly did that either to, mm-hmm. to, to do that. But what's interesting is how the hazard released energy was well known. So, you know, I, I, I'm yet, and, and you know, I'm, I'm not suggesting that people should be encouraged to do this, but I'm yet to find a new hazard that has killed someone. Right. They are all right. well-known hazards with well-known controls. Yeah. Now, now, what I see quite often is either the circumstance of the event or the event itself, it could be that the assumptions were wrong, or what I'm seeing more often is that the event exceeded the design limits of the control. Right. Okay. And once again, that comes back to the fact that when we look at risk, because we form this bias of prevention, uh, my belief is that we should actually start with the right side of the bow tie. Yeah. We should start with an event has occurred. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's it's even just shifting that mindset um, to the understanding that all prevention will fail at some point. What well, has has to fail, right? Yeah, exactly. And so 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 many organizations double down on that side as we kind of talked about prevention bias yeah. a little bit, to where we're, we we're so convinced that prevention is the end all be all that we don't think about the other side at all. A lot of times, what happens when uh, when that energy does move? No, it can't. It can't because we've we've done all this to prevent that. It would never happen. We don't think on the other side of that how to actually recover post moving of energy, post fatality producing anything, yeah. right? We don't we don't think on the other side. We just make the general assumption in, in a lot of organizations that no, 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 no. We're just going to invest all of our time, as we said, onto that side, onto just focusing on prevention, that we don't think about what happens when something actually reaches out and tries to bite us. Correct. And that, and that happens more often than not. Right. And, and I think that's part of the, the issue. But at the same time, um, we're, we're not having that grown-up conversation with people either. Yeah. Uh, so so what, I, what I see is that because we start um, on that prevention side, we form this bias and it becomes a bias of denial. Mm. Okay, which is, which is part of the challenge. Because organizations uh, struggle if you say to them, if you start on the right side of it, that the event has happened, how do you respond, how do you recover? Um, that's asking them to accept, accept it. And, yeah. and they really struggle with that, that shift in mindset. Mm-hmm. Yet the reality is, if we go back to it, the consequence has never changed. Yeah. So when it does go wrong, and then, and then uh, you show them in the risk register where they said, well, you predicted a death. 
that's the language I use because that really horrifies them. Yeah, of course it does. Yeah. Okay, because that's what your risk register is. It's based on you know, odds, right, prediction. Right. Well, why are you surprised? Yeah. Um. So what? Yeah. So what we find is that, um, and this is where I can sort of shape it from a from a learning team perspective, is that how do we shift that practitioner from being that expert, that gatekeeper mm -hmm. and owner? How do we shift them yep. to be a facilitator? Yeah, exactly. And a, and so a facilitator I, of, of good outcomes or safe outcomes, yeah. not not yeah. prevention outcomes. Yeah, I think because you know we're we're unpacking a few different bits there, and I think it is important to, to recognize that, as we kind of said, in this kind of current defined role of the practitioner, um, they they're almost they're they're promoted to kind of this to this guru to this prophet, yeah, um, to kind of this this centralized this 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 really this the centralized person that contains all of the safety knowledge for the organization. And then when I need a safety answer, I can go up on high to the safety office and ask the guru and they'll deliver me holy wisdom from the safety office. Right. And so just, just number one, kind of, kind of, kind of going back to that definition, just number one, that just seemed really dumb to me, right. That we're going to, we're going to basically take all of the knowledge from the folks that actually do work and invest that into a person that doesn't actually do work, but has a book that tells them how to do work. Mm -hmm. Right. That, that just seems like to, to kind of tie back to, you see, I'm driving a little bit towards learning, at least yeah. learning from those that do. Right. Absolutely. Uh, but, the, yeah, but that requires it's, it's, a skill. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, that's still so in with, go ahead. I didn't hear you. Yeah. Sorry. But, but that requires a skill and that skill yeah. is different mm -hmm. to the skills that people normally have. Right. And the thing that we talk about is that, uh, a good practitioner needs, needs to be able to ask, needs to be able to discover, needs to question, needs to be able to reflect and resolve. Um, but those skills are different, say, for instance, doing an investigation. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, and that's that's where I kind of lean into this redefining of the role, right? And so if, if, it's, if it can't, if people can't tell... I'm not a fan of kind of the guru style, profit style of professional practice of safety. Uh, if there's kind of one thing to really call out as BS, that's, 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 a, that's a big load of BS, right? To think that there are kind of safety, um, safety gods out there that, that kind of contain all the knowledge, right? And that, that's where we go and we, we, we pry knowledge from them. Um, when I look at this and I think about this shift in role, um, often the current defined role is exactly that. It's the fact that the, the, the professional is looked at as a guru, as an organizational soothsayer, as a fixer of company woe, as I'm going to call you so I can blame you and you can fix my problems, mm -hmm. right? That's kind of where the, the, the more normal role of practitioner or the practitioner finds themselves in most organizations. And I think you're exactly right. When I close my eyes and I imagine what the safety practitioner should be, it's not that it has a lot to do with being a facilitator and it has a lot to do with being a team member. And it has a lot to do uh, with, with being a, a, uh, a creator of teams of someone that, that, that bridges gaps and brings people together and facilitates learning and facilitates conversations. When I really think about what the role of the true safety practitioner, um, it's really a reshuffling of that deck, mm -hmm. right? Currently, if you, you look at the, the kind of the levers of, of, uh, or the set points, for where, you know, the things that are high level importance for safety practitioners currently, you've got compliance turned to 11, right? 
<laughs> you've you've got you've got uh, traditional safety turned to eleven in a lot of ways. You've got all these bits and pieces there, and learning's turned way down low, and all these other little bits and pieces that we know are probably way more important just are turned way down low. And is compliance always going to be a role of a safety practitioner? Probably to oh, an yeah, extent, yeah. right? As long as there's laws that we deal with and as long as, as long as governments are a thing and they impose rule upon us, then we're probably going to have to deal with certain certain bits of regulations and laws and compliance. But for me, and I get a lot of heat for saying this, is that compliance just isn't that important compared to all the other stuff, right? Uh, compared to all the other bits, compliance probably goes far way farther down on the list of importance and learning moves way up towards the top. Yeah, uh, right? uh, look, absolutely. I mean, c- compliance is exactly what it means. It means it's the expected minimum threshold. Right. I say to people that compliance is a trip hazard because the bar is set so low. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, and the fact of the matter is, is that we've just, we've completely saturated that approach. I mean, how much more can we squeeze on compliance? It's not getting us anywhere, right? It's, 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 it's not, it's not going to push us any farther, right? Complying harder is not going to push us any farther. New the, laws, new regs, new compliance is not going to push us any farther. Well, look, it never does. Right. Sadly, we're um, uh, next month is our tenth anniversary of one of our industrial disasters called Pike River, where twenty nine people lost their lives, and was a major reason why we uh, amended our laws. Um, yeah. You know, I can share with you. Um, uh, you know, the, the the stuff we focus on, the stuff we're doing now, we're back to business as usual. We're waiting for the next disaster to to, to, to pop along. Sure. But if we go back sure. to that person, that practitioner, um, uh, we use the language that, that part of that practitioner's role is to uh, co-create and co-construct that learning opportunity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because, because they've got to be involved in the learning process, but you, you're correct that they're not the person that's giving the learning. Um, I'm, I'm really keen to build a range of safety robes that people can wear to, to get in the evangelical status that they want. And, and of course, um, we'll make sure that they've got some reflective strips and they're also made of some fire retardant material <laughs> just, just to make sure that, you know. I would like, yeah, yeah. Oh, trust me, I, 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 I get it. I Trust me, I completely get it. I've, I've spent a good portion of my time arguing with with organizations over the need for fire retardant face coverings. So trust yeah. me, I, I know I know all yeah. about this. But I think this, a nice robe, <laughs> a nice robe, or or in I some want one states, of those hats. I want one of those big pointy hats. I oh great! Like uh, look, I'm yeah. sure we could also develop the safety onesie for those that have to end up doing the night shifts as, as well. We should do the, the what's the, what was it called? The snuggie, the safety snuggie. The safety snuggies. The, that's right. We could high, do all those high, high vis safety snuggie. I think that would be the way to go. But but the challenge is. Where do we give those practitioners that opportunity mm-hmm. to gain those new skills? Because sure. it's all well and good for us to say, you know, and once again, I, I find there's some irony. I don't blame anyone, okay, because we, we create this environment. But if we're, if, we're saying, if we're saying that these people have got it wrong and we want them to get it right, how do we get them to get down that pathway without blaming them for being the position sure. that they're in? Because they're an outcome. Um, yeah, well, exactly. For me, I, I'm I'm always I'm always leaning back towards the assumptions, right? I'm I'm always going back to the underlying assumptions. So I think if we want to get there, we have to get to the point of actually redefining what safety means to an organization. And mm-hmm. we already said what that is a couple times, right? Um, we could say it's a presence of capacity. I, I've gotten to the point of just saying safety is a presence of defenses, 
right? But it's it's calling it for what it is. Safety is not the absence of negatives, right? It's the presence of capacity, right? It's the ability to it's the ability yeah, it's, to, it's to fail and recover. Yeah. Right. It's it's the ability to fail and recover gracefully. Yeah. Right. That's that's what safety truly is. It's not a it's not a goose egg or a two or a one point seven five or whatever other freaking number we want to come up with to throw at it and say is good and what's not good. Right. It's 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 really the presence of things, not the lack of things. Right. So I think um, and I think anybody that listens to you and, and, and pretty much anyone that listens to me probably of, of like mind when it comes to <laughs> when it comes to that redefining the safety, I would say. Um, but I think that's that's where where we start. Right. Again, I think if we start to understand that, let's even if we just paint this picture that say we'll say safety is the presence of defenses. The only way that we learn about whether our defenses are present, flawed, not great, good, whatever, is through learning. Mm-hmm. Right. Correct. So I learning is, is really the only tool that we have to, to create our new definition of safety. Yeah. Right. Because learning is the only tool that we have to figure out if those defenses exist or to figure out if they're good or if they suck. Right. (laughs) That's the only tool that we have to get to that point. So learning quickly would become the value of that organization. And then the safety practitioner is going to work to support the values of the organization. That's literally what their paycheck is signed for, right? Is for them to work to support the values of that organization. So I think I still trace that all the way back to the, the, let's just say the better definition of what safety would be to an organization. Mm -hmm. I think if we redefine what safety means to an organization, the, the professional practice of occupational safety and health within that organization would naturally start to shift to support that better definition. And I think, through that shift, we would see learning move way up, you know, if not be number one on that list of priorities for, for a safety right. practitioner. But for that to happen, we have to support people and organizations it, to yeah. understand when do those learning opportunities exist. Right. And right. Uh, in one of the recent podcasts we did where we challenged the black line, blue line, mm-hmm. um, we, we basically said that risk ebbs and flows through the organization. Sure. Um, so, and, and when we talk about ebbs and flows, it ebbs and flows through also through your contracting relationships, mm-hmm. through your management, through your supervisors, all the way down to the worker. So, okay. so, so it's not a question of risk devolving because risk can evolve and devolve as it goes through, but it ebbs and flows. Sure. So, um, the opportunities for learning must exist as it ebbs and flows through. Right. And that ebbs and flows through the eyes of the person and their belief. So, you know, we talk about workers imagine work is done as being the either end. I think they're the outliers. Yeah. And they're the outliers you see when shit goes wrong. Okay. Yeah. No, no surprise because that becomes obvious. Yeah. But in between that, there's some other things that exist. Yeah. The ones that we've been exploring recently is this concept of, you know, workers thought and workers disclosed and workers reported. Hmm which also shows you where the ebbing and flowing is going on in that. Yeah. Um, but, but how do we seek those learning opportunities uh, where we're having to use uh, alternatives to what we do before? So, you know, people say, you know, well, if I spend hours or days doing investigations, I can't spend hours or days doing learning opportunities because that's their perception. Yeah. And, and their perception is the more effort they put into something, the more they have to find. I mean, yeah. could you imagine handing up a, an, an investigation report to the management team? I spent two weeks of my time and here's one corrective action. How would that mm-hmm. sit with them? Well, and exactly. So it's, it's some of it's shaping, still shaping some of those beliefs, 
right at, at the leadership level. Um, that's one of the harder conversations for managers in particular. I'll just say higher level, higher level managers or directors and above, um, especially at the executive level. It seems to understand that um, it, it, bold statement here, not every event warrants a corrective action, right? Some, the answer can be none, right? That can be the answer, right? And unfortunately, that's not an accepted answer within organizations, which again leads us to, well, I don't know, let's just put in a bunch of crap, right? And sure. just say that, that that works, right? Let's put in seven corrective actions. Three of those will be forms, right? And two will be new procedures and the rest right. we'll just come up with. But what's, what's interesting is that when we run a learning team, we might have pages and pages of learnings, mm-hmm. pages and pages, right. rich learnings. Right. But the improvements might be tiny. Exactly. That's the point. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. exactly. But the context is in what we say to the people is look at the richness of what you've learned. Yeah. And, yeah. and about separating that difference between what the organization learns versus what worker learns. Yeah. And we also now add that third piece of puzzle in to ask, what did the practitioner learn? Because this mm. is the bit we keep missing, yeah. Sam, the whole time. Yeah. Everything yeah. is organizationally focused. Mm-hmm. Yet the fact is learning is happening in these different clusters. Sure. And, and, well, we... and, and that, that that's a piece that I find to be so interesting with organizations. Um, I don't know how you feel about it. But when, when an organization first starts down this path of learning teams, right, most organizations are very focused on, okay, well, how do we track that these are happening? And how do we retain all this information? And then how do we take that and then spread that across all of our different locations throughout our entire fleet? Clone. Let's right? clone them all. <laughs> right. So, it, it, and again, exactly, right? Or uh, it, it's not even just the point of sharing. It's to the point of saying, okay, how do we make this corrective action that was very particular to this specific location work everywhere else because it's that good, right? Right. Um, so, but they get to the point to where they're almost fearful of learning teams that happen without them, mm-hmm. right? This this is kind of where I'm going. Is that to me? I, this is where I, say, I don't I don't know your feelings on it, but when I walk into a location and go, hey, let me tell you about these learning teams that we did, right? And it's not even gotten to the point of involving the organization yet. <laughs> They're doing like these guerrilla learning teams, right? There's like, we can learn something there. To me, that seems like a pretty good spot to be in if people are starting to, uh, it seems like a pretty good sign that we're moving in the right direction. Let me, let me put it that way. That's the end of part one of uh, episode nine with Sam Goodman, the hop nerd. Please join us in episode 11, where we continue with part two. And then I'll be joined by my colleagues, Glynis McCarthy and Brent Robinson, as we reflect on this two-part conversation with Sam Goodman. Thank you listeners for being part of this podcast. We'd love to hear your learnings from today or other topics you would like us to support you on. Go to www podcastlearnings.com and be part of the community practice of learning teams at www.learningteamscommunity.com 
The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the host and its guest and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the company. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are only examples. They should not be utilized in the real world as the only solution available as they are based only on very limited and dated open source information. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the company. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system, or transmitted in any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic, recording, or otherwise, without prior written permission of the creator of the podcast, Jay Allen.